0: Hey everybody, it's Matt. He's sure to join me and our team for a very special event, our annual Welcome to Greater Philadelphia gathering. This is one of Select Greater Philadelphia's signature events, where we welcome new and recently relocated organizations and leaders to our community. You'll enjoy great food and refreshments while connecting with our region's top academic, business, and civic leaders. This novel gathering provides us all the chance to say welcome to the neighborhood to our new colleagues who chose to grow their businesses and their careers right here in greater Philadelphia. Our exclusive location for 2019, that too is extra special. It's the new corporate headquarters for Entercom, the leading media and entertainment company of highly rated award winning radio stations, digital platforms and live events, including this podcast. And the Entercom team, well, they call Greater Philadelphia their home too. This special gathering, it's made possible thanks to Comcast, TD Bank, Pico, Berkshire Hathaway Fox Roach Home Services, the H&K Group, and the Intercom and Radio.com teams. We're all set for Thursday, November 19th at 5.30. It will be an evening filled with meaningful conversations and new friendships. Register today for Welcome to Greater Philadelphia. At chamberphl.com/welcome19. That's chamberphl.com/welcome19. This is growing greater. growing greater, bringing you the stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the eleven county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. That will never work! How many times have you been told that when you shared an idea or offered a solution to a problem? For many people, those four words, that will never work, can be devastating and demotivating. That phrase is perhaps among the most negative phrases anyone can hear, especially if you're a creative thinker or an aspiring entrepreneur. For others, When they're told that their idea will never work, it's motivating and inspiring, and it sets them on a course for greatness. And that's exactly the case for our special guest on this episode of Growing Greater. As a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur, advisor, and investor, Mark Randolph has navigated many of the hurdles facing entrepreneurs. While Mark may be best known as one of the co-founders of Netflix, the online streaming service that has redefined how viewers access on-demand content, Mark's career as an entrepreneur, it spans more than four decades. He's founded or co-founded more than a half dozen other really successful startups, and he's mentored rising entrepreneurs and has even written a new memoir. Mark joined us in studio to share more about his life and career, which is all outlined in his new book that's very appropriately titled, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And what makes this episode of Growing Greater even more special? It's our collaboration with our friends and colleagues at the Arts and Business Council for Greater Philadelphia. That team, well, they arranged for Mark's visit to Philadelphia for their program presented as part of the BPHL Innovation Festival that took place in October of 2019. Our conversation with Mark was conducted by Diana Lind. She leads the Arts and Business Council. Here's Diana with Netflix co-founder and new author, Mark Randolph. So congrats
1: on this book. It's a really insightful and entertaining and surprisingly personal read. And you've had this incredible career with a number of startups on the cutting edge of technology. So why do something so seemingly old fashioned as write a book
2: about it? That's a good question. And, you know, I waited 16 years. So it wasn't as if I was dying to write a book about it the minute I left Netflix. But I think what happened is you get some distance and you begin to be able to put into context the things that happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, this really is kind of the untold story of Netflix, and it wouldn't have made sense to tell it so soon after I left. But I think the thing that really drove me wanting to write the book is that in the years since I've left Netflix, I've had this chance to work with scores of other early-stage entrepreneurs. You know, as a mentor, as an investor, I've had a chance to work with lots of college-age entrepreneurs. And I kind of realized that All of these exact same tips and tricks and secrets uh, that I've learned over the last 40 years about startups are the exact same things that you need to make any idea come true. Mm -hmm. That everyone gets told, follow your dreams. You know, that's the classic commencement speech. But there's no follow your dreams 101. So I think the reason I wanted to write this book was to tell people, if you have an idea, do it. And here's how.
1: And also what it's really like when you follow that dream. I mean, it was interesting to see how it wasn't just a clear-cut success story. A lot of the parts that were most entertaining was actually seeing how you handled some of the big challenges and some of the mistakes that happened along the way. You
2: know, I, I do kind of lament the fact that entrepreneurship has become somewhat glorified. Right. You know, when I was starting out, there was no such thing as being an entrepreneur. You certainly couldn't take entrepreneurial classes at college, no less major in it. And unfortunately, it's turned into this thing where people are doing it for the wrong reasons. They want to be rich or famous, or it looks like it's all parties and Shark Tank and things like that. And I really wanted to show, honestly, what it was like, that it was hard, that there were disappointments, that the company almost didn't make it so many times. And I think that gives people a true picture of what it means to try and make a dream come true?
1: True. So I want to get into some of those stories of Netflix almost not making it, but let's start a bit more at the beginning. And the book takes place when you're almost 40 years old and have young kids. And I personally really loved reading about that because I'm almost 40 years old and have young kids. And so I love the stories of early wake ups and family obligations. <laughs> to your point about people thinking about becoming an entrepreneur and what they imagine, a lot of people imagine entrepreneurs being people, in the early 20s, unattached, so on. And I thought it was interesting that you had already had a career and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the career you had before you launched Netflix and how that might have influenced that beginning of the company.
2: Well, Netflix was actually probably my 6th, not probably, it was my 6th startup. So it isn't like all of a sudden I was working in the coal mines and then had this idea for a streaming service or something like that. And in fact, the first 20 years of my career was I was a direct marketing person, a junk mail king. So one of my startups... Two of my starts were mail order companies. Two of them were magazines. I did a lot of direct mail. So I had all this experience mailing things. I had all this experience shipping things. I knew subscriptions. I knew personalization. And so, you know, in many ways, the seeds of Netflix were planted 20-plus years before that company actually started.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the book also starts out with a number of car rides where you and Reed Hastings are spitballing ideas. So you've had this experience of running these startups successfully, and now you're starting to think of like what your next act might be. You talk about ideas like personal shampoo, surfboards, and then you come up with the idea of selling videotapes online, which leads you to DVDs. There are two things that struck me about these initial phases of Netflix. First that you believed DVDs were going to be the next technology for viewing films when not that many people had DVD players in the late 90s. And then secondly, that a subscription model, not individual sales, were going to be the backbone of the business. How come you had faith in those aspects of the company and these particular ideas?
2: Well, part of the nature of doing a startup is you have to have faith in things that are extreme long shots. I mean, if you waited, let's wait three or four years and see whether DVD actually takes off. that's way too late. What DVD was for us was a missing puzzle piece mm-hmm. because... You know, this all started because Reed and I got fired, but fired in the good way, you know, where they basically say we're acquiring your company and you have six months of being paid and coming to work with nothing to do. So in these drives, we were brainstorming ideas. And as you mentioned, there are crazy ideas like surfboards and baseball bats and dog food and shampoo. But one of the ones was this video rental by mail. But back then it was VHS cassette. Right. So It was attractive because it was this $8 billion category, and it was attractive because the incumbent was hated, Blockbuster, (laughs) and we were thinking, wow, there's got to be an interesting way to disrupt this business, to get in and use the internet to change the video rental experience. So when the DVD came along, it wasn't like all of a sudden we saw the DVD and decided to build this whole idea on the DVD. We had already spent a lot of time thinking about and then ultimately discarding Video rental by mail. And DVD just was the piece that took all the problems we had found with VHS rental by mail and solved them. But yes, huge bet. Because the DVD was completely unproven. It hadn't even launched when we actually bet on it. And there was no one who knew whether or not it would actually have the trajectory of, say, the LaserDisc.
1: Right, exactly. Which gets to 10 million
2: households and dies. Or of the VCR, which gets to 98% of households. And that was pretty lucky. But any success story has huge elements of luck in it. And you don't know those until you look back at them. But that was just one of a dozen examples I could give of where we bet on something and it happened to break right. I mean, a huge amount of the reason that I'm sitting here is survivor bias. Right. But if, for example, if the DVD had failed, you know, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here, or I'd be
0: talking to you about personalized shampoo or something like that. We'll be back in just a moment with more of Diana's interview with Mark Randolph. As we learn from Mark what drives him to innovate and create, I'm reminded of the team at WSFS Bank. Their support, it actually makes this podcast possible. We stand for service. That's what WSFS Bank is all about. You know, their friends call them WSFIS, and they are the seventh oldest continuously operating bank in the U.S., a permanent fixture in our community. Wispys is a service-oriented, locally managed community banking institution. The professionals of Wisfis, they've been servicing businesses of all sizes, as well as growing families, with a wide range of banking services, and they continue to implement innovative tactics to streamline personal and business banking. Learn more at WSFSbank.com and join me in thanking Wispys Bank for believing in us at Select Greater Philadelphia. Now, as we rejoin Diana Lind of the Arts and Business Council, who's conducting our Growing Greater podcast interview with Mark Randolph, the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix, and the author of the new book entitled, That Will Never Work, Mark shares that getting a no in business does not always mean no when pursuing that career opportunity that you think may be just out of reach.
1: So you talk about luck and one of my questions was going to be about there's actually an eventual meeting that you have with the CEO of Blockbuster where there's a chance that Blockbuster could buy Netflix. And, you know, there's a moment where Reed Hastings gives the valuation of $50 million and he laughs at it. And we know, you know, who laughs last in this actual story. But I wondered... You know, what would have happened if Blockbuster had said, okay, we'll take a bet on this? The story would have been completely different, perhaps.
2: It would have been completely different. I mean, then then they could play that game of, well, what would have happened? Right. I mean, one is, well, no, everything that happened the way it happened, but we called Blockbuster rather than Netflix. But I think that's unlikely. My inclination is they would have screwed it up.
1: Right. They um, wouldn't
2: have pursued the innovations that we pursued. And the things that ultimately brought... Blockbuster down were way more than just Netflix's entry I mean they were struggling with financial issues and cash flow and I think those things would have hamstrung them regardless of whether they had Netflix or not but yeah it was very very lucky that happened but I tell you at the time I mean that happened just to give you the quick background it happened because we were actually successful. We'd been struggling for two and a half years to come up with a business model that actually worked for renting videos by mail. And we'd finally found it with this completely crazy idea of no due dates, no late fees, subscriptions. You make a list and we automatically mail them to you. And so to make that work, we had to give people a first month free.
1: Right. Mm -hmm.
2: And that was expensive. And so what happened is all of a sudden this idea worked and then it was this combination of joy at oh my gosh thousands of orders are coming in every day and terror because each of those orders was going to cost us $50 to give them that first month free right yeah and going to go bankrupt so when we got to blockbuster and pitched them and then they said no that was the worst luck i could imagine because i had hoped that when they actually had the meeting with us, that would be the thing that saved us. Right, instead, yeah. it sent us back thinking, now we have to find our own way through this.
1: Totally. You are hinting at sort of the exponential growth that Netflix experienced. And though in the beginning, there's a lot of ups and downs, and it seems like, you know, there's a chance that it's not going to work out. It seems like by the second year, of Netflix, you have a success on your hands and it's growing, but as you say in the book, growth has its own set of problems. How did you handle that initial growth phase? And are there things that you would have done differently now knowing what you know about scaling businesses?
2: Probably not, because they're all different. And also playing the game of if I knew now what I knew then is also strange because of course I'd do things differently if I knew the outcome you know I would have ignored the first two years of screwing around with stupid things and <laughs> launched the company as a streaming service or launch the company as at least do it by the subscription no due dates no late fees service but part of the learning is going through that phase of screwing up and trying things and building the culture which is so responsive to change so if I really went through something differently I would have gone out in day one and bought stock in this crazy little company called Google which was just <laughs> launching and that would have been a much more effective return on investment for me. Um, So scaling the company is interesting. It stresses you. You're All of a sudden you've made it and you change from being kind of a startup into being something else. But you also, you knew from the day one that even though the DVD business was now taking off, that ultimately it was going to be a either a download or a streaming business. And so we knew there was still another shoe to fall.
1: Right. Yeah. I remember there's a moment where you're talking with a VC and you're pitching him on Netflix and he basically says, this is terrible. And he saw that Netflix's business model was eventually going to be streaming, but you weren't quite there yet. And
2: that's an understatement.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so I wonder about that process of kind of seeing the future in the distance, but not being there.
2: That's a great thing to talk about, because. It happens all the time, and it's happening even more frequently now because the rate of disruption is changing. But people see platform shift a long way in the distance, and the challenge is not, can I see that it's happening? It's, what do I do about it? And if I look back at some of the really smart things we did at Netflix, that has to be one of the smartest, because we knew on day one that eventually people would be downloading movies. or We weren't sure if it was download or streaming, but we knew that digital delivery over a wire or through the air was the future. And in fact, when everyone who we told the idea to said, that'll never work, which is why the book is called That Will Never Work, that was the number one reason. Either that or the fact that there was 9,000 blockbuster stores. And the truth is they were right. And we knew they were right. And we knew that it was just a matter of time that eventually it would be all to be digitally delivered. But what they were wrong about was the timetable. Mm-hmm. That This was not something that was gonna happen in weeks or months or years. That Hollywood was terrified of being Napstered.
1: Of of having these
2: digital bits in the clear where they'd be pirated and their business folks down the drain. Most people had slow internet service to their house. And those who had internet service to their house, the internet terminated in their computer, not in their living room television. I mean, there was a million reasons why it was a long way off. So the challenge, to get to the point here, is that you had to build a business which worked now and in the future. So if we had said, okay, we're going to be a company which is the world's fastest shipper of plastic, that would have been a great positioning for the first X years. But it would have eventually crushed us when the world moved away from DVDs. But if we had said in day one, we're all about streaming content to your computer, we would have died a fast death because there was no one to do that, no content available. So the thing we did was kind of go orthogonal on this and say, Netflix is about finding entertainment you love and essentially making it delivery agnostic, that it worked to find movies and TV you loved when we shipped it to you on DVD. And it worked when you chose to download it or stream it. And it will work when you get it beamed telepathically into your fillings or whatever the future holds. (laughs) And making that decision on day one, that this was not about the delivery, but about establishing this relationship with a customer that was about finding content you love, informed everything. It informed the decision of what we wanted to carry every single DVD available on day one. And that on day 90, we wanted to have deep content every, And then on day two years in, that we'd have a dynamic website that was different for every person to help them find movies and eventually investment in the technology for taste prediction. And then, of course, creating proprietary content. But it's all been this progression of fulfilling that promise so that every bit of brand equity we built, every customer we acquired, every piece of that relationship was about movies. And that didn't make a difference how people received it.
1: That makes a lot of sense. By the fall of 1998, Reed Hastings comes into your office with his laptop and a PowerPoint on it and proceeds to deliver a presentation on your accomplishments so far.
2: (laughs) My Accomplishments. (laughs) Thank you very much for saying
1: that. (laughs) He says, you hired the original team. You established a coherent culture. You launched Netflix. But then he starts to get into some of your shortcomings. And you say to him, you don't think I'm a good CEO. And he responds, I don't think you're a complete CEO. Tell us what reed meant by that
2: so reed and i have always had this completely honest relationship with each other i think it's one of the things that really informed the netflix culture is neither of us ever wasted time on avoiding hard truths to avoid hurting someone's feelings we just said what we thought and collectively strive to find the truth so when reed came in and began listing all my shortcomings i took it seriously he had no ulterior motive He wanted to really understand, wanted to say, I see problems here. But what he meant by a complete CEO is that he saw smoke at a small size, and he was concerned that if there was smoke at this small size, there'd be fire as the pace picked up and as the company needed to move faster and more aggressively at a bigger scale, and that he believed it had to be a flawless execution play as well as a strategic and marketing play. And he was seeing hesitancy. And what Reed was really saying at first, you know, I said, "I am not going to sit here, Reed, while you pitch me on how I suck." Right. And that was, I think, was of my exact yeah. words. And he was taken aback because he said, "No, I'm not pitching you on why you suck. I'm trying to say this company will be stronger and more likely to be successful if we run it together." Right. Because at the time, Reed wasn't working at the company. Right. He was my angel investor. He was the chairman of my board, but he was off doing other things. And he was saying, "I should come on full time," and he was saying he should come on full-time as CEO and I'd be president. We'd run it together. And it was a hard moment because I had had this dream of starting and running a successful company. But you think, you know, he left and I was sitting there, you know, in the dark, kind of in shock and trying to think, what do I think about this? And I kind of realized that this dream I had wasn't my dream alone that i had enlisted all these people to come in and help and work hard and give up their families and their vacations and it was their dream and the investors who'd put their money in including my mom right it was their dream and i owed it to them not to make the dream about me being the ceo and being the head of this thing right but my obligation to them was to make the dream come true about the successful company and it was very hard to argue that it wouldn't be more likely to be successful with read in and us doing it together and you know i I may have even said to you a second ago that i thought the decision about how to position the company was one of the best decisions i ever made but the best thing i ever did was emotionally come to the realization that this was the best course of action and bring read in because not only in the short term was it great and that was the renaissance at netflix so many things that set us on this course success happened during those couple years after we began running it together. But certainly, if you look back at what Netflix has become now under Reed's leadership, wow.
1: Yeah. There's an aspect of the book that made me feel both like you have this real appreciation for teams and how important individual smart people are and how they all add up to a great company. But there is a little bit of lionizing also of both Reed and other sort of the great figures of the tech world like Steve Jobs. And so I sort of wonder where you come down on that question. And maybe it's not one or the other, but CEOs get a lot of credit for the success of a company and sometimes the other leaders don't as much. And I wonder what you think about that.
2: It's a complicated question because I first would have said it is absolutely one, which is it's the team. You know, we all want the epiphany story where this founder has the moment of inspiration, you know, that instant where it all becomes clear and that idea that changes everything. And poof, yeah. you've got Airbnb or you've Everybody. got Uber or you've got Netflix. And the reality is that it doesn't work like that, that, you have one person who you know, has this deep experience in personalization and experience using the mail to deliver different things and actually worked for many years learning how subscription businesses work. And then someone else who knows algorithms and computer science and maybe even had a late fee a movie and someone else who worked behind a video counter for 20 years. Right. And you mix all those pieces together and that's where these things come from. But the leadership of a team is this weird skill and when you're betting on startups you bet on the CEO that if you get it right once the odds are really high you'll get it right again and it's not because they do it all themselves it's because they understand how to prioritize and how to build that team and where to focus so it's not them doing it by themselves it is this combination of everyone's involved. Like the company that I did after Netflix, which is called Looker Data. When Lloyd Tabb, who was the real genius behind that, said, I just got this person who asked if they're a founder or not, because they were here at the beginning. I said, you just don't want to go down that path at all, because it's almost impossible to define who is a founder. Right. Is it the person who was there on day one? Is it the person who contributed the real insight that changed the business? Is it the person who was there at the big pivot? I mean, so what do you know?
1: Well, the example of the conversation that you had with Reed exemplifies this idea of radical honesty, which is one of the tenets of Netflix's culture. And you talk a bit about having a culture at Netflix, whether it's you know, some of the hijinks that some of the staff play, or it's, you know, a meritocracy also focus of sort of ability to be laid back, but also if you can get the work done, you'll be recognized for it. What do you think were some of the most important aspects of the culture that led to its success?
2: So culture, the first thing you have to understand is that culture is not what you say, it's what you do. So, I don't care what you carve into the cornerstone of your building or what you put in your culture deck or what you get up in front of the company and say, these are our principles. That's all bullshit, if you'll pardon <laughs> yeah. me. What counts is how you act. And you know, you're a mom, you know, when I was a dad, you learn really quickly that kids pay way, way more attention to how their parents act than what you say.
1: True. And it's yeah. the
2: same thing at a company is that Cultures are formed not aspirationally, they're formed behaviorally. They're formed the way the founders naturally act, how they treat each other, how they treat the company. And the second thing about culture, especially a startup, is that at the beginning, when there's a thousand things to do and there's 10 people to do it, you do not have time for anything except for freedom and responsibility. You do not have the time to say, here's what I want you to do, and if you run into this problem, then do this, and at the end of the week, give me your expense report, and I'll check it. You just go, oh my God, you see that mountain over there I'll meet you there in three weeks (laughs) and you trust this person will have the responsibility to be there on that mountain with the supplies you're expecting and they will figure out how to solve all the problems they meet on the way and every startup has that culture to some degree what's unusual is when a company can keep that culture as it grows
1: yeah so there's a moment where you talked a little bit about the renaissance of netflix there's also a moment where you move offices from santa cruz and there's a way in which having the offices there seems to kind of embody netflix as being somewhat unique and it's close to where you and your family live The offices go to Los Gatos more firmly in Silicon Valley. And to bring it back to some of the topics that are talked about a little bit more regularly on this podcast, I wonder how important you think location is for a startup in general, how important it was for Netflix at that particular time. It's definitely something that in the Philly area we think a lot about in terms of companies being able to start up here and get the kind of talent and capital they're looking for.
2: Well, I wish we had started Netflix in Philadelphia. That would have solved a lot of problems.
1: (laughs) That would have been great. (laughs)
2: Um, No, companies do take on the personality of their location. And, you know, Netflix, that was started in 1998. So we're talking 21 years ago. And perhaps back then it was more important to be in a Silicon Valley place. And I firmly believe that's not the case now, that you can do a great company anywhere. And the thing that's changed is not, you know, bandwidth and – everything's in the cloud, it's culture. And what's happening is this risk-taking entrepreneurial culture is found almost everywhere. Because what you need is not the founder with this vision, what you need is the landlord who's willing to give a lease to a company with a negative net assets. And you need a lawyer who's willing to come in and actually understands a little bit about incorporation law and and is willing to do this for stock, or not for money. Right? And you need someone who's willing to lease you. The, I mean, it, it's a it takes a village. And what we're seeing is that many, many, many places now have those villages, including Philadelphia, which actually has a very strong startup mm-hmm. culture now. Mm-hmm. But I actually, you may help me realize a great answer to a question. And I do get asked frequently, "What would I do differently next time?" and I lost the battle to keep the company in Santa Cruz. It was founded in Santa Cruz. It was the city that I lived in, and I wanted it there for the culture, for that laid back, not in Silicon Valley. I wanted balance in my life where I didn't need to commute, that I could ride my bicycle or walk to work. And I was not quite prepared for what I was up against. Mm -hmm. And when we did Looker, we knew what we were up against, Mm -hmm. and we kept that company in Santa Cruz and it's now a thousand plus employees in Santa Cruz That's um, awesome. and I wish I had done that with Netflix.
1: So speaking of differences between now and then, on the back cover of your book, it says, in 1997, all I knew was that I wanted to start my own company and that I wanted it to involve selling things on the internet. So what do you think now in terms of starting a company or getting involved as an investor? What's motivating you today?
2: Oh, selfishness entirely. (laughs) 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 No, that's not true at all. So when I left Netflix, I wasn't sure I had another startup in me. I got kind of sucked into Looker. But what I wanted, though, was I wanted to have a better balance in my life. But I needed the startup fix. And I decided the best way to achieve that was not to start another company, but to help other people start theirs. So the last bunch of years, I've been a mentor to other early stage companies, which gives me that thing that I enjoyed most about Netflix, which was always coming into a room and sitting around a table with really smart people and solving really hard problems. And now as a mentor, if I invest the time to know the founders and know their teams and their product, I can do that. And then I I get to go home at five.
1: Right. Yeah. So
2: that's been this tremendous thing and that's really what motivates me is uh, I'm not going to say it's as trite as giving back, because it's it's not entirely altruistic. I mean, I get a huge amount of emotional satisfaction about getting to solve these problems on my own but I also kind of realized that all these things that I've learned as an entrepreneur are the exact same things that everybody faces. Whether you're starting a business or not, Mm -hmm. whether you're in a big company and you see a problem your customer's having, whether you're in a department and you see something in your job that's not going smoothly, whether you're young and you go, how can I afford to live in the uh, middle of the city? All these problems are approached the same way, they're solved the same way, they're tested the same way. And I kind of wanted people to realize that if you have these ideas, do something. And in the book, it's not about a startup It's called The Amazing Life of an Idea because I want people to see that how you take an idea and make it real.
1: Yeah. So take us back to when you were a sophomore in high school. What were you like and what did you think your life would be like?
2: Wow, I didn't know what my life would be like until I was in my 30s probably. But back when I was a sophomore, I was a pretty bad student. I mean, I was a C, a solid C student. My thing was always extracurricular stuff. I, I don't mean drinking. I mean like doing magazines and starting little clubs. And I guess there's some foreshadowing of what my life would eventually be like. But I never had this drive of I'm gonna be a veterinarian or I had no clue. So for those of you people who have no clue when you're a sophomore in high school or a sophomore in college or you're know you 28, relax. (laughs) Or I'd use the word chill, but I'm afraid that has a different connotation.
1: (laughs) So what's your mentorship process like? Do people, do they come and find you? Do you have a network of people where you find your mentees?
2: No. I now have pretty good deal flow, so to speak. (laughs) At the beginning, I was basically put the shingle out, said I'm doing angel investing. And that's pretty attractive shingle. (laughs) So people would all come and they begin pitching me in their companies. And I begin asking what I thought were reasonably intelligent questions since I had just finished launching that company and many others. And you could see their calculus changing where they go, wow, we don't want his money. (laughs) we <laughs> would love him to keep getting more of this advice. But it gave me a chance to really date people, to talk to a lot of people about what was involved in starting a company, and then pick the ones I wanted to work with. And that's what I do now. All these ideas are bad. Every idea is bad. I'm so cynical about it. No successful company I've ever heard of is successful doing the thing they started out originally. Right. It's the journey. Yeah. And so what you're looking for are people who are going to do that well, or are going to take this original idea, but immediately find out what's wrong with it and go to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And you want someone who has the perseverance and the creativity. And these least personally, as I'm deciding who I want to work with, someone who I like, I mean phone rings at one in the morning and I look down, if I wince, that means I picked the wrong person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of being a mentor, you, I think in the book, there's a little sliver of something about how maybe your son has kind of gotten the business bug. And there's also a bit about how your dad had these eight rules for success. Things like be open-minded, but skeptical. Don't be afraid to make decisions when you have the facts on which to make them. Which I really like. So I wonder if you have your sort of own rules of success that you are trying to pass on, whether it's to your mentors, to your children, what that looks like. Have you come up with your eight?
2: <laughs> no, and I should, actually. I should. <laughs> but the thing is, my dad's rules are pretty good. Yeah. And I have typed up my dad's... Mine have the handwritten one in my bathroom, but I've typed up them from each of my kids, and all of them love them and have hung them up where they see them every day. Because... You know, they're reasonably simplistic, but they're great reminders of what's important because most of his advice was how to be a mensch Mm -hmm. in
1: business.
2: (laughs) You know, it wasn't like uh, buy low and sell high or like leverage or or happiness is positive cash flow. It was things like be prompt and Mm -hmm. be courteous always up and down. I mean, the things that you... Mm-hmm. Make you a good person as well right. as a good business person. But if I think probably the best lesson I've taught my kids is it's kind of a loaded phrase these days, but I have to use it There's no better one, which is no doesn't always mean no.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That there's a million reasons why someone will tell you you can't do something and that you have to recognize that that's not a dead end. And there's a great story I can tell about myself using that. Which I will if you have a second.
1: Yeah, please. So um,
2: this is in college, and I was probably a junior or a senior. I'm not sure what the timing was. But I wanted to get a job in advertising. And a big New York advertising agency was coming up to our college to do the on-campus interviews. And, you know, they were doing it at 30 campuses and they probably a thousand people interviewed. And then I made this first cut and there's probably eight of us from our school and they all went down to New York and we did a half day of interviews and I made the cut again. And now it was down to like 40 people. And that was a full day of interviews. And I made the cut again. And there was four of us who came in and spent a full day at the agency and interviewed all up and down. And I didn't get the job. And I went back to college and I kind of sulked a little bit. And then I said, no, I'm not going (laughs) to take this. What do they have that I don't have? And I decided I had to ask. And I wrote letters to everyone I interviewed with, not just that day, but the last time and the last time, and asked them all, basically, what could I have done differently? What experience were you looking for? What skill? What can I build that next time I apply for this job? Because I will. (laughs) I will actually be successful. And I got a call, and they said, why don't you come back down to New York? And they offered me the job. And it turned out that of the four finalists, they had not given the job to any of us. Wow. That being an account exec was this turning a no into a yes type of job. And they wanted to see which of us wouldn't take no for an answer. Right. And I could probably fill the entire podcast with examples of all three of my kids using this like magic about (laughs) when someone says They look and they go, Dad. I can't apply for this. It says you have to be 21. I go. So what's going to hurt to apply? You're way more qualified. You you're perfect for this. And lo and behold. 19 year old gets the call and gets hired. Yeah. I mean, that's one of a hundred times. And it is, it is like magic.
1: Yeah. Nevertheless, he persisted. (laughs) (laughs) Persistence is definitely valuable. Well, I guess the last question is what's next for you? And is it, you know, these companies that you're mentoring? Is it more writing?
2: No, the thing that I try and get right is balance, Mm -hmm. which is this perpetual challenge and balance is different for everybody you know for me it's fairly straightforward it really it's like a three-legged stool and one of course is the business stuff. And not because I need the money, but because it's so interesting and it's a skill that I have that makes me whole to do that. And the second one is, I call it feeding the rat, which refers to like when you, I do a lot of outdoor stuff. I climb and I uh, mountain bike and I surf and I kayak. Anything outdoors where you could hurt yourself, I'm in. But that was a part of my life that had to be submerged for a long time. And So now I need to get outside because that's what drives me. And then the third part is you've got to have your family because, you know, without that, what's the point of it all and your friends? So I'm trying to find the balance so I could answer the what's next about the business side of it. And it's largely the mentoring and it's largely the giving back. It's the reason I wrote the book was not to be an author or not. I mean, there's no reason other than the fact I wanted people to learn that if they have an idea, they can do it, that this barrier they have, it's illusory. And not just preach it, not just follow your dreams, (laughs) but actually lay out how someone specifically took a crazy idea that everyone said that will never work and managed to make something happening while having balance, while staying married, while having my kids know me and like me. Yeah.
0: That's what I'm doing now. I love Mark Randolph's story, and I love his positive approach to overcoming hurdles and those naysayers mark's book that will never work the birth of netflix and the amazing life of an idea it's available now at bookstores and online and if you like this episode be sure to rate and review our podcast and share it with family friends and colleagues and through social media too be sure to check out other inspiring episodes of our growing greater podcast at radio.com wherever you get your podcast or at SelectGreaterPHL.com slash podcast As we wrap this episode of Growing Greater, let's thank the team at Kistler Tiffany Benefits. They're actually helping us attract new companies and new jobs to Greater Philadelphia. Customer intimacy. This is the key characteristic that distinguishes Kistler Tiffany Benefits, leading to its growth and success over the past 55 years as a trusted leader of employee benefits consulting for companies in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. The Kistler Tiffany Benefits team works hand in hand with their clients to find long-term strategies and sustainable solutions that control costs for individuals, small businesses, and large complex organizations with multi-state operations. The experts at Kistler Tiffany Benefits, they understand and appreciate the importance that employers and employees place on affordable, valuable benefits packages. Learn more at KTBenefits.com. That's KTBenefits.com and join me in thanking Kistler Tiffany Benefits for believing in us at Select Greater Philadelphia. Growing Greater is presented by Select Greater Philadelphia, a council of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Select is the business attraction organization for Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania, and helps to grow the economic vibrancy of our collective community by attracting new businesses and new jobs to our region. Special thanks to our program producers, Elena Karmazin and Maricela Juarez, along with the great team of marketing and creative services professionals at our chamber. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in anytime and anywhere you get your podcasts or online at selectgreaterphl.com podcast.